0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, we might need a little of that encouragement because I'm going to preach a message on the subject of evangelism, okay? And uh, the title of the message is Sharing Christ as We Go, and it's taken from one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. But I know that the topic of evangelism is not a neutral one in the church. I think there are two kinds of people in the church when it comes to evangelism. One kind is militant about it. They love doing it. They're devoted to it. They're ticked off that nobody else in the church seems to care about evangelism as much as they do. And the other group are those who are the ones that are ticking off those other people. (laughs) They're the ones, if we're honest about it, a lot of us in the church... We don't share Christ with others as often as we'd like to, and as often as we probably know we should. And the thing is, even when we set out to do it, we're not really sure what we're doing, and it turns out kind of awkward, and it sours us on it, and we feel guilty about it, and we're kind of tired of feeling guilty about it, but that's just where it is. And that seems to be the two main groups that I've come across in the church are those who wish everyone would share their faith, and those who are like, man, I know I should be doing better at this. Suffice it to say that when we preach about evangelism, it only adds fuel to the fire that's already burning in you. If you're already feeling guilty, this sermon is probably going to make you feel even worse. And if you're feeling frustrated with the rest of the church, and you're like, everyone's got it, this is probably going to make you feel even more frustrated with the church. Why aren't we doing it after a message like that? Well, let me tell you, I'm not trying to preach a message like that this morning. I don't want to hear a message like that. I don't certainly want to preach one. What I think we have here is one of the most beautiful and compelling stories of evangelism recorded for us in the New Testament. And it's one that I think empowers us in our evangelistic task. We're called to share and proclaim the Christ to everyone in the world. That's not an easy thing to do, and partly because we've got a lot of really strange thinking in our heads about this topic. So I'm going to dive right into it. I want to look at this the story of Philip's encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. That's not a couple of words that I use every day. I don't talk about Ethiopian eunuchs all the time, but this is a profoundly important story, and I hope that out of it, you're going to see some things that we have to understand about the gospel. We're going to start reading from verse 26 and go on from there. And here's what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as a Zotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which, by the way, happened to be where Philip and his family made their home. That's the Word of God, and it paints a really compelling picture for me of an evangelistic encounter that to some, at first glance, might seem like, come on, that's too good to be true. It doesn't work out like that in real life. But I want to unpack this story for us and seize seize upon a few important things we can learn about evangelism from this story. The first thing I see is the importance of being obedient. Now, I don't know if you're looking at that picture going, what does that have to do with obedience? Does anybody, you might have a guess, you might be thinking about how your kids never listen to you, and uh, so you have to ground them from their Wii. But if, if you're, if you, you, probably know what that device is. If you don't, uh, you got to get with it a little bit. <clears throat> okay, that is a Wii video game controller. It was a revolutionary video game because instead of buttons and joysticks, you just held this wand in your hand and there was a sensor in front of your TV and you would just go like this and whatever you did, the video game would monitor your movements. It was like magic. And if you're like older than 40 like me, it really seems like magic compared to what we had growing up. Now if you're older than the age of 12 though, that's a very frustrating device. Kids seem to get it, but man, if you're more than 12 years old, you try holding this thing and in theory, here's what's supposed to happen. Wherever you point it, the cursor on the screen is supposed to go there. And there are parts where you have to enter your name, and so this on, on-screen keyboard pops up, and you're supposed to guide this little cursor to each key and click a button to type. Now you watch a little kid doing it, the, they could write a novel on that thing. If you're more than 12 years old, though, it's very frustrating. You're like, this thing's got a mind of its own. I can't, I can't make it go where I want it to go. Any of you parents have that when I mean, your kids like, play wee with us? You're like, I hate this. It makes me feel so much like a dinosaur. And I wonder, though, if we sometimes don't make God feel that exact same way about us. It's like this thing's got a mind of its own. In theory, it's supposed to go where I want it to go. Good things will happen. I'll win the game if it goes where it's supposed to go. But it never seems to go where I tell it to go. Instead, I say left and it goes right. And, and so I just, you know, my name is misspelled, but I'm going with it because I just don't have the energy and patience to work that thing any further. It's important to know that in this text, we're not dealing with Philip the Apostle, but with Philip, who happened to be one of the deacons that was chosen to oversee the distribution of food to the widows in Acts chapter 6. This is a man who served the church as a leading servant, a deacon, and so he was used to this idea that out of his obedience, God was doing great things in the world and in people's lives. Under the authority of the apostles, he served faithfully, so that at a time later on, when great persecution against Christians broke out in the city of Jerusalem, everybody ran for their lives. Now, I don't think that was cowardice. I think it's wisdom when somebody is trying to kill you to try to preserve your life unless they leave you no choice but to denounce Christ or to give up your life. If people are persecuting you, don't be like, oh, great, I'm going to martyr myself. That's not the way it works. If you have no choice, you face death with courage. But if you can prolong your life to keep serving God, it makes sense to preserve and to flee and not give victory to those who are wicked. And so they scattered. And Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says that as they went running for their lives, they preached the gospel everywhere they went. Now, some of you are still stuck in the whole martyrdom thing. I know that you purists are like, we should love death in Jesus' name. We should run fast towards the guns. We'll talk about it later, okay? We'll talk about it. I could just tell the vibe. I've been preaching here 15 years. I know when some of you are like, compromiser, weakling, you should... Look, I'll cut in line in front of you to be a martyr if it comes to that. But the point is they're running for their lives. They have been uprooted. They have left their homes, their businesses, and yet it occurs to them wherever they go... They are preaching the gospel to anyone who will listen. That's not something new. For Philip and many others, it was a natural outflow of the life that they lived when they were stable. And so under duress and stress, they continued to live that way because, frankly, it was the only life they knew. And so as they're going, it says that Philip, in verse 5, the next verse, this is Philip in particular ended up in one of the major cities in Samaria and was preaching the gospel and people were riveted to his message because as he preached the gospel, he also, he also worked signs and wonders, you know, s- supernatural things that God was doing that no human could explain and as a result, people were glued to this man's message. It's also important to note that Samaria was a place where, where the Samaritans lived, these are people the Jews had a strong enmity and historical prejudice against. People who are Jews didn't like people who are Samaritans, and yet that's where this Philip found himself. It would be so easy to say, you know what, I want to preach the gospel, but frankly, I don't really care that much if these people never experience the mercy of God. I can't stand them. But he bucked the system He shed off the prejudice of his people group and he decided, this is where God's got me. Even these people need to know that they are greatly loved by God. And so he was faithfully and fruitfully preaching the gospel. And while he was there, presumably still in that Samaritan city, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, says to him, hey Philip, listen, rise and go toward the south road to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place and he rose and went. I think it's interesting that Luke goes out of his way in writing this to record in, at the end of verse 26 there, and this is a desert place. Here's the reason that's important. Gaza was one of the five ancient key cities of the Philistines. You guys know the Philistines? They infamously produced guys like Goliath they were the historical enemies of the Jews. They couldn't stand each other, and of their five chief cities, Gaza was one of them. Now, Gaza, a hundred years before the writing of this letter um, of this record, uh, was destroyed by one of the Jewish kings. He had gone to war against Gaza. He had won victoriously, and he had completely razed the city down to rubble. Nothing was left in that old site but ruins. And so about 50 years after that, under orders from Pompey, the the emperor in Rome, the city of Gaza was rebuilt a little closer to the west, closer to the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Now why is that important? Because at the time that Philip was alive, there were two Gazas, the old ruin of the city and the new city near the shore. And there were consequently then two roads leading to Gaza. One road was well-traveled and it led right down to the new city, and it was important as a city because it was the last oasis of civilization before a long stretch of desert road leading to Egypt. It was kind of like that last pit stop before you leave civilization and drive to the middle of Nebraska or something. You know, I'm sorry if you're from Nebraska. I've been to Nebraska. You've got to take every truck stop that comes along, right? And so that's what it was. Gaza was important for that. But there was another road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and that was a deserted road that led to a ruin. People used to travel that road, but nobody was on that road today because, frankly, who's got business in a pile of rubble? You've got to have really a strange reason for being on that road. And so when God's Spirit calls Philip, he calls him not to the well-traveled road that leads to the metropolis of Gaza. He leads him to take a journey on the desert road that no one travels on that goes to an ancient ruin. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get... A, a calling like that, you know, if, if I were to get a missionary calling and God said, look, I want you to go to New York City or to Kuala Lumpur or Bangkok, someplace where their action is, I think I would be happy about that. But if I said, I'm calling you to the middle of the Sahara Desert, I'd be like, I don't get what the point of that is. I'm wired for strategic thinking. I ask quite often, really, what's the point? And I'm reading this and I'm going, I don't get this. Why is God's Spirit sending Philip on a fool's errand to a deserted highway that leads nowhere? And yet to Philip's credit, it says in verse 27, he rose and he went. Philip did what made no sense because God's command made sense out of it. Now listen, if you're an analytical person, Probably every chance that comes up in life, you weigh it against all the possible pros and cons, and you step into things after you've thought it through ad nauseum. You have analyzed the living daylights out of your life. But the truth about our God is that sometimes it pleases Him to send us in places and in directions that, from our logical point of view, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the summation of our life with Christ is how we respond to every prompting, every command from God, even and perhaps especially the ones that don't make a lot of strategic sense. I don't know of too many church planners who would have obeyed God if they heard what Philip heard, but Philip went. It was his pattern to obey God. Now, a lot of people see in this encounter the perfect setup. So Philip's walking, in, and there's this rich dude sitting in a chariot, reading the Bible, and he has lots of questions. And He goes, oh my goodness, a man who knows the Bible, come up and give me answers. I seek the Lord. Now, if you had met somebody like that, it would probably be kind of easy to share your fear. like, oh Lord, this is a softball. Thank you very much. But you know what? That softball situation was the result of radical obedience. If Philip had blown off the prompting God gave him, he would never have found himself on that road, and probably that eunuch would have rode home on his chariot still perplexed about what the book of Isaiah meant for us. You know, I think the Bible is filled with stories like this. People who strike out without knowing where they're headed, but what they know is this, God is no fool. And if he sends me this way, there must be some destiny on the other end of that road. Now if I'm not God, I've got to learn to trust him because I can't see where this is going, but God can see everything. And if he sends me there, I must follow because my destiny lies down that road and not down this one. I want you to think about Abram leaving the land of Ur where he had wealth and a reputation to strike out for points unknown. Think about Gideon who goes against an army of tens of thousands with 300 men. He has no idea how that battle is going, but the odds makers have given some pretty good predictions. What about Peter sitting in a boat, and he sees what looks like a ghost, only it turns out to be Jesus, and Jesus says to him this stupid thing, Bro, walk out to me. And Peter's thinking, Oh, That's water between you and me. Last I checked, that's not solid material. I'm going to fall in. And yet Peter steps out of the boat. Such a profound act that John Orberg managed to write a whole book about that thing. This faith-filled obedience is how we find our destinies. And frankly, I think the reason so many of us are so bored, sick of our lives, is because nothing ever happens. Yeah, we buy new stuff. We get promotions we have to get a new car every two years of that new car smell just to feel like our heart's still beating. But truth be told, we are sick of our lives because they've been so engineered, so wisely crafted, so, so played safe that our lives as we're living them won't actually take us to a place of destiny. They will take us to the most predictable end. We will finish our days in safety, cashing in our 401k, Maybe die quietly in hospice someplace with a few kids who hopefully made it okay. And that's going to be the story of our lives. Ho hum, wake me up when it's over. And we wonder, what about these other people who tell these stories of like God's in their life and every day's an adventure and they weren't sure where their next meal was coming from. Well, people who experience a life like that, Don't get there simply by playing it safe. When God calls them, they move, and with that faith-filled step into the unknown, they meet their destiny. It's so important that we learn to obey. That there is this sense that when God gives us these inner promptings in our hearts, do you guys know what I'm talking about when I say inner promptings? Some people actually do hear them as audible voices. I really think, If if we tell the truth, that's a rarity. It's not an impossibility, but I think mostly what people hear is a very strong conviction in the voice that they've always heard. It's their own voice, the voice of their conscience, their heart. And God hijacks that and says, listen, I want you to do this. You know you need to do it. You can't explain why, but something in your heart is on fire. And you're like, I don't get this. Normally I'm not that excited, but why am I suddenly feeling like I need to go to this conference? I need to stop for that guy who's got his his car up on a jack and he's changing his tire. I, you know what I'm talking about? Inner promptings. Pastor Frank was telling me about how he was driving past this one accident and he felt prompted to stop, but he was kind of busy and looked like other people, so he kept going. It turned out to be one of our church members who was in the accident. He's like, "Darn it! I should have stopped. I should know better than by now to ignore that inner prompting." And I knew exactly what he's talking about because that's been my story more than once. Do you know that feeling when something in your heart is agitating you? And maybe it's not an audible voice, but it is insistent and strong and it won't let go of you. And you feel like the only way you're going to move in another direction is to just squash that voice and go, Stop it. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to go there. Well, those promptings are very often, not always, sometimes you just ate too much pizza at night, but most often those promptings are from the Lord. And when they hit you, it is God saying, look, I'm so bored of the way you're directing this film. Why don't we add a gunfight or a car chase or something? This is like security footage, man. Your life is so uneventful, so painfully safe. It's hard to watch. What if I sent you somewhere to do something that is out of the ordinary and you probably would never think to do it without a prompting in your heart? I honestly wonder if God had not sent Philip on this mission if he would have walked right past that Ethiopian's chariot and went, nice ride, man, and then just kept going. Never stop to think this is a divine appointment, an encounter I'm meant to have with this person. It would have just been another guy reading out loud on the side of the road. How many of those have you passed? People just standing around, background scenery so absorbed in the safety and the predictability of our normal lives, we often suppress these promptings which God is giving us to spice up our lives and make us feel like maybe I actually showed up on this planet. Maybe I really lived while I was here. I didn't just exist, I really lived. And I'm telling you right now, if you keep suppressing the callings of God and those inner promptings, you will never find your real destiny you will create a life of your own design. It's so important that we learn to obey the promptings of God in our hearts. Are you with me? I don't want you to sit there and be all guilty. I mean, God's going to give you promptings maybe even this afternoon. I, on the way to church, I drove past a guy in a convertible. Uh, it looked like a 1950s era Cadillac. He had sunglasses on. He was an older guy. It looked like he was out for a nice Sunday cruise and his car had broken down. And he's standing there by his car looking so forlorn like this is not the Sunday I planned. And my heart was just raging like I should go, but I had left the house late. And I had one of those promptings. And I just wonder what that encounter might have been if I had stopped. If I felt the freedom to just forget about being up here in time and and just stopped. I wonder how that would have shaped our destinies and the direction of our lives. And I know that God speaks to you this way. You might not have had a name for it, but I know you recognize what I'm talking about. And the next time you feel it, try something. Just go, God, this is crazy. I don't know that guy, but I'm just going to walk up to him. and go, hey. Maybe it'll be the next flight you take and the flight attendant looks really depressed and you just go, look, I don't even know you, but are you okay? Are you doing all right? Is there anything I can pray for you? And you might be surprised what an appointment from God that turns out to be I see something else the importance of being sent the importance of being sent I chose the picture of a tow truck because that's one of those things that is totally useless unless it goes to where the need is tow trucks don't accomplish very much staying at the station do they you know I this reminds me of a a time when a friend of mine we're at a restaurant together he's getting up to go to the bathroom he goes hey I'm gonna the bathroom can I get you anything what a strange question. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, can you pee a little for me too? I mean, it doesn't make any sense because I kind of got to go there to do that. Someone else can't do it for me. And the idea of a tow truck is unless it goes to where the need is, what good is it? That runs directly counter to what I think is the prevailing attitude about evangelism in the evangelical church. And that is what I call the Venus flytrap mindset. I'm just going to sit here, armed to the teeth. I know how to lead people to Christ, but I'm just going to wait with my big Bible on my desk and I'm going to emanate beautiful smells. And then when an unsuspecting fly kind of comes near, I'm just going to, ah, they came to me and I got them. I think that's really not the best way to think about it. God will bring people into your life who are looking for truth and for Christ. And that's a great blessing when that happens but I think there's no way to get around the fact that evangelism ultimately requires displacement. It requires of us, just like Philip, to rise and go. He was doing great stuff in that Samaritan city, but his next destiny lay elsewhere, and in order to catch it, he needed to relocate himself from where he was to go somewhere else. I'm not suggesting that that displacement is always geographic, that you have to move somewhere or go somewhere else. I know some of you are just waiting for the next excuse to move to California. If you want to go, go. You know, But, but it's not about moving. It's about saying, Look, I can't just stay in the predictable, familiar safety of life as it's always been, and expect that I'm going to end up sharing my faith only with those who unsuspectingly wander into my clutches. We are meant to actually find ourselves in the orbit of those who need Jesus more than they need anything else in their life. I love the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now those verses are most often read in missions meetings where we're sending someone to deepest, darkest Africa or or someplace else where there's no internet. And we're like, oh, how are you going to survive? And we think that's what going means. But you have to realize in our own culture, in our own country, There's such a huge gap. We think people know who Jesus is. I'll never forget the story I heard on the radio of this guy who said, look, I went to a jewelry store and I thought I would buy a little cross pendant for my wife. And I was looking and the girl behind the jewelry counter was helping me. I said, I'd like to look at that one. She goes, which one? This one? The one with the cute little man on it? I mean, think about that. This is at a store in London where Christianity is centuries and centuries old. And this girl thought the man hanging on the cross is a cute little decoration. She had no clue in the seat of Western civilization that that was Jesus. You think everybody knows that. Everybody in the Western world knows the story. But the truth is, there is this incredible gap in understanding who Jesus Christ really is. And so this idea of being sent, going, being displaced to go to those who need to hear the truth about Jesus, that is relevant for us right here without moving a single inch from where we live. That displacement is real. I want you to think about the situation of the man to whom Philip had been sent. He was an Ethiopian eunuch, and let me just break that down a little bit. The reason he was a eunuch was not probably voluntary, okay? These servants were placed in charge of very important things that required high trust and focus. And so their masters would castrate them, because when you're castrated, you don't look at girls and go, oh, you know, you just like, whatever, I got work to do. It focuses you, it makes you impervious to the, the tricks of seduction, and it was especially important for guys, for example, who like oversaw the king's harem, where all his ladies lived, you don't want a guy who's like, oh yeah, the king's asleep. You want a guy who's like, it doesn't work, lady, just go back. Okay? Because he's missing something. It's also really important for the guy who oversees the money. Because you can have some, some honey going, oh, you so fine. How about give me some of the king's money? And he's like, whatever, get out of my way. I'm focused. And that's his job. And so he oversaw the entire national treasury of the Ethiopian king. Now the king was considered in Ethiopia to be a direct manifestation on earth of the sun. So he was like a god in human form. And so regular government work was beneath him. And so his mother, the queen mother, would take on the royal title of Candace and she would basically run the government of the nation. And this guy reported directly to her and was in charge of all the money. Now he had a lot of power, he lived in luxury, he was given an enormous amount of trust and responsibility, so that was one of the defining parts of his life. It wasn't like he was totally down and out. But then on the other hand, men give me an amen, he was a eunuch. Alright, I mean, he was lighter by at least a half pound or something, right? I mean, this man, he was wrestling with identity issues just like you would if you had lost that part of yourself. I wince whenever I read about this kind of stuff. And I want you to think what he was dealing with because the natural drives that exist in a man were absent from him. He wrestled with this identity that he belonged to somebody else that as much responsibility as he got, somebody else had mandated this change in his life, given him this responsibility. He wasn't his own man. And on top of all that, in an era where heirs were so important, he would leave behind no descendants. No one would carry on his name. And so while he had a decent life, inside, it wasn't so rosy. He had stuff going on. Does that remind you of anyone around here? Maybe in the northwest suburbs of comfortable Chicago, living in a 3,000 square foot house with a three-car garage, and everything looks perfect, but inside, not all is well. We all have issues, a brokenness. Wounds we're carrying around. Something is going on in us. In fact, some would even say we are defined by our pain, by the wounds we carry around. And this man had some. To make it worse, somehow along the way, he'd come to know of the God of Israel. He was drawn to this God. And so he wanted to worship Him. And he went to Jerusalem, which was, if you look at um, where Ethiopia is, in the Roman and Greek mind, Ethiopia represented the outer limits of the known world. Beyond Ethiopia... Who knew? Maybe it was outer space. Like they had no idea what was past Ethiopia. So this guy journeyed literally from the ends of the earth to go to Jerusalem reasoning, I love what I know already of this God of Israel. I want to worship him in his temple, in his home city. And that's what he did. Well, when he got there, he had a rude awakening because he was barred from entering the temple at all. According to Deuteronomy 23.1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. I chose the tamest of the translations. The others talked specifically about the body parts. This, This law and tradition of the Israelites required that anybody who was a eunuch or otherwise disfigured in their genitalia were not permitted onto the temple grounds because of their disfigurement. I know that seems awfully intolerant and harsh, but that's what it was in those days. So after making this massive journey of pilgrimage, he gets to the temple so excited, he has offerings and carts, armed guards watching all his money, and they go, hey, sorry, but uh, you can't come in. Imagine what that felt like to him, to hear that. He says, you don't understand, I've traveled a long way, I just want to worship God and pay my respect to him. <clears throat> And they said, well, because of your disfigurement, which, of course, had nothing to do with your design, you can't come in. You've got to go. Not only that, because he was a foreigner, he was not allowed to become a full believer in the God of Israel, a full Jew. He was what they called a proselyte at the gate, someone we like enough that you can hang out by the gate and watch the rest of us and align yourself with us at a distance. Well, I don't blame him for going back home. I wouldn't want to stick around in a place where I had met with so much rejection and prejudice. But he wasn't going home empty-handed. What we notice is this man happened to procure a copy of the scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah. If you have a Bible, you know that the book of Isaiah is not one of the shorter books. It's a pretty lengthy book. And so the scroll, which was handwritten and in one long, continuous roll of paper, was very, very expensive. Now, to the guy who runs the Queen's treasury, money's not an object. But it was also almost impossible for a non Jew to get his hands on a copy of that. And so the backstory, the presumption is this guy worked really, really hard. He used every lead, every negotiating tactic in the book. He got himself a copy of Isaiah. And I wonder why he was so drawn to Isaiah, um, why that particular book spoke to him. It's probably because the book of Isaiah holds out so much hope for those who think that they are impossible impossibly far away from God look at Isaiah 56 3 to 5 says and my blessings are for Gentiles too when they commit themselves to the Lord do not let them think that I consider them second-class citizens and my blessings are also for the eunuchs that's got to just bless you when you're a eunuch my blessings are also for the eunuchs and he names them as a group they are as much mine as anyone else For I say this to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy, who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them in my house, within my walls, a memorial and a name far greater than the honor they would have received by having sons and daughters. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I want you to think about what that would do to this man as he read those precious words in, God's, in, in Scripture. He, he, he was drawn to this God even though his people had so turned him away. You know, there are people like that. You know, the truth is, I love our church, but in general, a lot of the prevailing idea in America is that the church suck, that Jesus is cool and his people suck. They're terrible. They turn us off. They turn us away. I don't think that's true of us, of course. We're the one great church in town. But you know, I think in general, God's people cause far more pain than God does. And the bitterness and hurt a lot of people are carrying around is not because Jesus did them wrong, but because his so-called representatives so misrepresented him. And yet because God himself was so compelling, this man would not be discouraged. He wasn't going to say one bad experience and it's game over, forget it. I'm done with these Israelites and their stupid God. He said, well, I'm done with the dumb Israelites, but man, their God just keeps calling out to me. I need to know him. See, I think it's a mistake to call everybody outside the church a seeker. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's honest. Not everybody's a seeker. That word should be reserved for those who are actively looking for something who are ready in their hearts, not because of their own readiness, but because God has been shaping them for this. This man is a true seeker. Even this sour experience would not cause him to shut down. He bought a Bible at his own expense with great fervor. He's reading along the way saying, I need to know the God behind these words and this system. He draws me out. James McDonald, who's just up the street a little ways from us at Harvest Bible Chapel, he talks about his evangel- evangelistic philosophy and he calls it red apple evangelism. Anybody heard of this strategy? Red apple evangelism. <clears throat> so James McDonald sees the world, uh, non-believing world, in two basic groups. Okay? I'm sorry. By the way, <clears throat> let me, I, I put this slide in the wrong place there. There are green apples... And these are people who just are so far from the gospel, they're not thinking about it, they don't need it, they don't want it. Spiritual things are not in their orbit at all, on their radar. And so they're happy exactly as they are. God has not seemed to be breaking them or shaping them. So if you go up to them, calling them a seeker, and you say, look, do you know that you need a savior? Their response is, saving from what? My life rocks. It's way better than yours. Who are you supposed to be saving me from? My million dollars and my trophy wife and my Lamborghini. Is that what I need saving from? I love my job. I love having Sundays free to go mountain biking while you guys are in your little church doing your little thing. And you know, that's what they're gonna say. Because they're just not in a place where spiritual things matter. Now that's his point. I think that you can't make it so hard and fast. I think there are people who think they're far from God, but they're being worked on by God. But this is his thing is green apples. And there are others who are like red apples, red apples. These people, God has been preparing their hearts through the circumstances of their life, through the wounds that they bear, the pains they're carrying around, through frustrations they can't seem to shake. There's this thing going on where God is saying, look, your thing is clearly not working. Your answers have not proven to be good enough You've tried it your way. What has it gotten you? And they've come to a place of recognition. I need better answers. I need a better life. Something needs to change for me. And as the person is being brought slowly by God to that point of crisis, they are ready for the gospel. They are ripened in their heart by God. Now, here's the truth. There's a lot of stuff that James McDonald says that I kind of agree and then I won't go as far as he'll go. I think it's maybe too black and white a way of looking at things, but I think it's helpful that perhaps the reason some of us have had such frustrating encounters in evangelism is because we're going after people who really have nothing prepared in their hearts. The soil of the heart is simply not plowed, and maybe we thought we were going to lead them to Christ. All we've done is poked at that hard soil a little and loosened it up. That's not unimportant, but it's not going to lead to somebody saying, I found Jesus. But there are people right around you today who are coming slowly to this awakening that my thing ain't working. I tried it now for 30, 40 years. I tried this whole strategy. It's not leading to anything. And they're at a place where someone will come and say, do you know this Jesus? That they will be more receptive to Jesus than you might ever imagine. I think we presume that everybody outside the church is closed off to the church and to Jesus. But the truth is, there are people out there in your midst right now who God has just been doing a number on them. And on the outside, they might look all put together, but in their hearts, they're struggling and they're coming to a place of brokenness where they can finally admit, I need another way of understanding my life. I think it's a good idea to be alert to some of those red apple people in your life. I don't think we should neglect the green apples. I think everybody is on a journey and they need to take another step. But I think we're missing out on some people who are falling apart right in front of us and we're not reaching out to them in the love of Christ. This Ethiopian eunuch was bearing some deep wounds riding home to Ethiopia. And in the midst of that, God would call this man, Philip, to go and join him. And let me just wrap up with this one last point, and that's the importance of being invited. Look what it says here, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, I know in your minds that you're thinking of a little chariot like in Ben-Hur, a one-seater, and then this guy with a couple horses, and he's reading a book. That's not the picture at all. There's no way the, the, the overseer of the queen's finances is, is traveling alone like that. He likely had a very large entourage, a lot of pomp and circumstance. He probably had an armed escort. And so to approach this would be kind of like approaching the president's you know car, car thing, whatever. Have you ever seen that motorcade? that he rides in 80 vehicles, including a heavy-duty crane to lift blown-up buildings off. It's crazy. I've, I drove past it once in L.A., and it's like it's intimidating when all these guys are on the earbuds, oh, you know, Roger. and they're talking, and they got guns, and you're like, you're going to approach this guy. It took boldness for Philip to go. If God hadn't said, go on, go on, he's not going to kill you. All his armed guards are not going to stab you. This guy is ready. He's waiting for you. Go to him. You know, let me tell you, I've been in situations where I've had a prompting from God, but the situation just intimidated me. Let me be real transparent with you, okay? Um, this is not easy for me to admit. It's embarrassing, but the last time I experienced this real like, conflict between what God was leading and my own fleshly weakness was I was, at, at, on this, I was traveling, I was at this mall, and I saw this group of high school kids they weren't like the nice-looking kind of high school kids. They looked like real sarcastic, bully, smart-aleck. You know, like they were going to embarrass me. And I felt this inner prompting to go up and just talk to these guys. I couldn't suppress it. It's like, go and bless them. These guys are just sitting around the mall. They have no life. Go and talk to them. And I wanted to, but then I kept playing out the scene where they're like, oh, you, 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 you know, you like making fun of me. Oh, yeah, okay. Mr. And I was, you know... I was right back transported in time to high school. And I was going to be embarrassed by a group of kids who I could have been old enough to be their father. And peer pressure still works at 42. I was astounded. I'm probably the only person like this. The rest of you are like, whatever, and you march up. But man, I was intimidated. I didn't want to look like a fool in front of these kids. Another weird thought I had is what if they beat me up? (laughs) What a stupid thought! But that last thought helped me feel a little bit of dignity as they just walked away and ignored them. People who are far from God aren't always going to be approachable. They're not going to give off signs like, hey, I'm reading the Bible, want to come over and explain it to me? They're not going to be like that. Sometimes they're going to be, going to be hiding behind a fence that seems impenetrable. You can look at the palace they live in and go, why would anyone living in a house like that need anything from me? I'm intimidated. They're so much more accomplished. They're so much more educated. When they open their mouth to talk, I feel like a baboon. What am I going to say to this person that could possibly bring value to their lives? It takes boldness to go on your scent. And what's amazing is if we make the first step towards a person God's prepared for us, what we'll find is invitation and not rejection. What's also amazing about this encounter is instead of launching into a spiel, instead of going, hey, sit down for a second, do you know that that God has a plan for your life? And do you know there are four laws governing the spiritual world? And, you know, instead of launching into a spiel or go, check it out, check out, there's this big ravine, it's an impossible chasm, and you're on one side and God's on the other, and let me show you this cool thing with this cross-shaped bridge, you know, those are great But instead of just launching into it, presuming anything, I love that Philip walks up to this man and humbly, without presuming anything, just asks him a question. He says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And what if the answer had been, yeah, I do, I'm having quiet time, dude, thanks, man. I'm really rocking this passage in Isaiah. Well, that'd be fine, but imagine how offensive if this guy knows what he's reading, and you're like, hey, are you reading the Bible? You don't look like a Christian, so let me just kind of, because you kind of have funny hair, and you have a cigarette tucked behind ear. You, you couldn't possibly be a Christian. Let me preach at you. How do you know? You know, we as Christians, we're notorious for judging books by their covers, aren't we? And I think that's why we work so hard on our covers, because we suspect everyone looks at us the way we look at them. If we don't look perfectly put together, manicured, cultured, suburban, all that, urban, chic, whatever, people aren't going to buy what's really going on in us. The truth is, we're too quick to presume we've got people figured out just by one look at them, by one chance encounter. That's why it's the height of wisdom to open with questions, not with declarations. To just ask them, look, what is your understanding so far of everything you know about God? Where are you at? What's your journey been like? Why are you standing by a roadside reading a Bible at all? Why are you even talking to me? Why are you open to this? Questions signal humility, a learner's posture, and it gives that person a chance to testify before you launch into your sales pitch. And the truth is, I think we should memorize our sales pitch and throw it in the garbage. We're not trying to sell anybody anything. We're trying to introduce one person we love to another person we want to love, that's what we're doing in evangelism. His question was based on a passage in Isaiah 53. And as you're reading this, it paints a beautiful picture of Jesus, who though he was the only human being who ever lived, who did not deserve punishment, bore the most horrific kind of suffering, so that through his wounds, he would come to heal our wounds. That's the story of the gospel. And I want you to think about how compelling this story was for the eunuch, why he'd settled on that verse and was reading it aloud. Often when you read something aloud, you're trying to really get it to sink in. Have you ever done that? You're reading a textbook for homework, it's just not sinking, so you start reading it out loud and it's finally, it's like, oh, breakthrough. He's dwelling on this because something inside of him instinctively is identifying with this broken man. The one who, even though he is being treated unfairly and harshly, doesn't say a word, he faces his punishment, he accepts the injustice, and there's an agenda here, he's doing it for a reason, and this eunuch, because he has brokenness, is so drawn to this man, and he asks, listen, who is this man that Isaiah is writing about? Now his question reveals he'd done his homework, because even the Jewish scholars of that day were divided on who this represented. Some scholars said it's the nation of Israel, others said Isaiah's writing about himself. But Philip knew the answer. He knew that what this man was reading about was his friend Jesus, the real Savior, the Messiah. And he wanted to introduce this man to the Christ. And so, beginning with that scripture, he says, This guy says, Look, this is what I thank you for asking me. How am I supposed to understand any of it? Because nobody has told me. Are you willing? And he invites this man up. He says, Philip, come on up here to my my royal chariot. Have you ever ridden in a limo before? Come on in. Make yourself comfortable. i got HBO in here, dude. And he's just riding with them for a while. And throughout that journey, he is unpacking God's word. And God's so gracious. I'm sure as they were riding along, Philip in the back of his mind is like, I'm getting further and further away from home. We're headed towards Ethiopia, dude. So God just zips him away. Supernatural. The next thing you know, he's in Azotus. By the way, another one of the five chief Philistine cities. Philip is a missionary to their historical enemies, people they once hated and killed. He is now leading to Christ. It's so important that we take a posture that leads us to be invited into people's lives. We're not beating anybody over the head with the gospel. We're saying that I have a love that I've found, that found me, which if you knew it, would change everything for you. I just want to be invited into your life. You know, And here's the thing, it's not us they're inviting. It's Jesus. He's the one that the more they get to hear and know, He just draws people. And if we start to look and sound like we represent Him, they will invite us because they're really inviting Jesus into their lives. I don't think anyone likes to be sold. Today when I see a 1-800 number on my caller ID, I just turn it off right away. I don't want to be sold on anything. We have folders in our email clients where that kind of sales pitch directly goes without even passing across our eyes. But a friend is always welcome. A real friend. Not a friend with a plan or an agenda, but a friend with real love. A real preparation to be there with me and for me. My challenge and invitation to us is to be friends like that to people. To realize that God is the one doing the work. You're not supposed to make anyone into a Christian. He is preparing lives all around you. He is awakening them to their pain. He's causing them to butt up against brick walls again and again. He's proving lovingly to them that their thing ain't working. And when they come up empty and have no answers, He will send us through the inner prompting of our heart go to this person. Go to this place. Have you ever had a moment where you're like, there's an old friend I haven't talked to for years. They live in San Francisco or somewhere. I haven't thought about them in months. But for some reason this morning as I was about to bite into my bagel, I thought of that person. Their face flittered across my brain. What if that's God saying, buy a plane ticket. You fly out and see your old friend. Something's going on in their life. They need you right now. They need an old familiar face who loves Jesus. Go to them. Follow that prompting. See where it takes you because on the other end of that line, God has been working and working to massage that person's heart and it will be our joy again and again to watch people see in Jesus the fulfillment of their longing and the hopeful answer to all their big questions. To me, this is evangelism. It doesn't have to be awkward or intimidating or artificial It doesn't have to be a drive-by shooting of God's truth to unsuspecting pagans on the street who I never want to see again, but at this moment all I care about is, do you know that you're going to hell without Jesus? You know, there's a place for some of that momentary cold call evangelism. But right around you in your own life are people God has been getting ready. And when you get that prompting in your heart, well, will you follow through? Will you pay attention to it? Will you obey it? whatever the cost. I hope that we will. I hope that it will be our joyful experience to see many people be led to Jesus Christ in this way. Thanks for your attention. Uh, I want to invite us, if we would, just together to bow. And uh, we're going to pray together. And here's how I would like us to pray today. I think later on when you get some quiet, alone time with God, you can work out with Him some of the repenting that needs to happen in this area of evangelism, some of the insecurities and hang-ups you wrestle with. But for this morning, what I'd like us to do in prayer is this. First pray, God, when you prompt my heart with your Spirit, when a, a flicker of a thought crosses through my heart or my mind, when I hear something in my conviction perhaps even if it's an audible voice. Don't let me just move on with my day. Hit the pause button in a big way, God. Just make me attend to you. And if it reroutes my whole day, so be it. I might just find my destiny on the other side of that act of obedience. So make me someone who is obedient and filled with faith. That's the first prayer I'd like us to pray. And the second is, God, I know that right now among the people I care about and love, there are some you have just been working on them for years. You've been drawing their lives to a crisis point where they know that their thing isn't working. And I know that you're the answer for them. I know that if they found you, everything would fall together. Lead me to those people. I pray for them. I bear a burden in my heart for them. Would you pray those two things with me? Let's pray and then I'll close for us. Let's pray together. Lord, I I know that you are not silent. You are a God who speaks. If we earthly creatures are so full of words, how much must you have words of truth bursting in you? And we know, Lord, that you are leading us all the time. That you send that little thought or conviction or a word into our hearts, into our minds, that just grabs a hold of us. We can't shake it easily. And we know that those things are so often from you. And so our prayer together as a church is that you will make us a people alert to your promptings, and men and women who, when we hear you calling, will go as commanded, will follow you without knowing where it's taking us, Would embark with you on an adventure where we will meet our destinies and really feel that we've lived on this earth, fill our lives with adventure, with powerful encounters, with beautiful people we'll come to meet and bring us to that place through every step of obedient faith that we exercise. Father, I pray for those precious ones all around us in our lives, in our orbit right now. People that we give our lives for, people we genuinely care about, but they're far from you. And on the outside for years they projected strength and hardness, but inside you are wearing them down. You are preparing their hearts for Jesus. And when your part is ready, God, and you call us, you, you send us to them, make us alert, don't let us miss that moment where we will be invited into their lives and we'll have the joy of speaking of Jesus. Until that calling comes, Lord, soak us in your words so that your word becomes our truth. So that when someone asks, we have something to say. Make us diligent students of your word, devotees, people who love the things you're saying. And above all else, give us the love of Jesus Christ. When we see the broken, the hard, the angry, break our hearts, cause us to love them in the name of the one who is love.